basement that nobody in the right mind would have ever rented except Max Gordon. <laughs> anyway, once you get down those stairs, you're in heaven. You're away from the world. You're in your womb. It's lovely. That's Lorraine Gordon. She's the owner of the legendary New York City jazz club, The Village Vanguard, and a 2013 NEA jazz master. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Question, what jazz musicians haven't played at the Village Vanguard in New York City? Answer, very, very few. The legendary jazz club has hosted everyone from Mary Lou Williams to Jason Moran. A jazz haven for more than 55 years, the Vanguard is still going strong under the ownership of Lorraine Gordon. From her teenage years in Newark, New Jersey, to her current stewardship of the Village Vanguard, Lorraine Gordon has devoted her life to jazz. She even named her compulsively readable 2006 autobiography, Alive at the Village Vanguard, My Life in and Out of Jazz Time. Her first husband was Alfred Lyon, co-founder of Blue Note Records. After her marriage, she joined the small company, and together they recorded legendary jazz artists such as James P. Johnson, Sidney Bechet, and Todd Dameron. They became advocates for the young and virtually unknown Thelonious Monk, whom Lorraine most particularly championed. After the Lions divorced at the end of the 1940s, Lorraine married Max Gordon, who had opened the Village Vanguard in 1935. Lorraine was a regular at the Vanguard, listening to the music as the club's reputation grew among jazz musicians and became, according to Nat Hentoff, the closest we have to the Camelot of jazz rooms. When Max died unexpectedly in 1989, Lorraine closed the club for one night. She reopened it the next day, took over management, and never looked back. For over 23 years, she has made sure that the Village Vanguard remains synonymous with great jazz. It's no wonder that Lorraine Gordon's been chosen for the 2013 A.B. Spellman NEA Jazz Masters Fellowship for Jazz Advocacy, which is given to an individual who's made major contributions to the appreciation, knowledge, and advancement of jazz. I spoke to Lorraine Gordon in her Greenwich Village apartment soon after the award was announced. I wanted Lorraine to tell me about her teenage years in Newark in the 1930s, when she and her other jazz-loving friends began what they called the Hot Club. Jazz can be hot, and everybody knows what that means if you like jazz. Anyway, we're just a group of kids in Newark that found each other who had the same like. There weren't a lot of us, because nobody really cared at that time, but we found each other, and we did model it after the Hot Club of France, at least the name, and we would meet once a week or whenever, and we all had a topic that we'd have to come and bring to and discuss and our records that we liked and say, we don't know who's on this record. Does it sound like Louis Armstrong or is it Big Spider back here? You know, we had to identify, and it was wonderful, and we loved it. That was my beginning of loving jazz and indulging in it. When we were kids, sometimes we'd come here, believe it or not, to the Village Vanguard. Yeah, you had your first encounter with Max Gordon then, Yeah, didn't you? I mean, actually, <laughs> he threw down the uh, gauntlet. <laughs> I picked it up many years later. 
Ralph Burton was one of the few DJs on the air at that time, and your brother introduced you to him. Oh, yes. Well, look, we always listened to Ralph on the radio. He was the only connection we had to the radio and jazz. And Ralph was giving a speech in New Jersey. My brother met him at this place where he was speaking and offered to drive him home to New York. But on the way, my brother <laughs> called me up on the phone and said, get downstairs. We're going to take Ralph back to his house in New York. <gasps> Whoa, I got all dolled up and rushed downstairs. And they did pick me up. And that's how I met Ralph. You knew the music, but he was really instrumental in introducing you to the people who made jazz. Well, he took me to 52nd Street. I've never been to 52nd Street. That was the most famous place in the world. All those great clubs were lined up and all those great artists would play. You can go into one club here, Art Tatum, go to the next one here, Billie Holiday, go over across the street, you hear Lester Young. It was heaven. It was the golden age of nightclubs for me. We went to Jimmy Ryan's and sitting across from the banquet I was in was Alfred Lyon and Frank Wolf, his partner. And Ralph said, you know who that is? Because I used to collect all those Blue Note records, those fabulous early Blue Notes. They were the most modern records I had heard because it was all improvisation. A lot of it was. Then he introduced me to them. Them. <laughs> Alfred Lyon, who oh, was the yeah, head of so Blue Notes and also your future husband. I don't know. Alfred and I looked at each other. Hi, you know. Somehow there was a connection because a couple of years later we were married. <laughs> I don't remember what happened. He got drafted into the army. I was a war bride, actually. In any event, he got mustered out of the army very early in the game. <laughs> that was it. And then Alfred restarted Blue Note Records, which he had left in the care of Frank. Frank Wolf. Frank Wolf. And then I came along and became the third wheel there. So how did it work? How did you choose who to record at Blue Note? How did the company operate? Well, we had this little office on the top floor of 767 Lexington Avenue, and Lambert Brother Jewelers was on the first floor. Well, we had two rooms. One was where we stocked the records, and, and Frank did the shipping, and orders would come in. And then we did all the recordings with the musicians. Where did you record them? Oh, well, we used to record at, um, on Broadway there, the, the, the wonderful studio. W-O-R? Yeah, W-O-R, right. And there was a wonderful guy there who was our engineer, and we always used him. I'm very handsome. I couldn't concentrate on the music, but <laughs> anyway, we did a lot of recordings there. And then we would have to get them pressed, and then we'd have to sell them. I went out finally on a, a salesmanship tour of the country with my portfolio and sold records. Went to places alone where I'd never been, Chicago, St. Louis, whatever was close and had a record store. I went to them. So I did that. And then I worked in the office. When I'm back, I was the secretary. I did the public relations. I did everything that one had to do to keep the company rolling. When you and Alfred and, and Frank, you'd have an artist in the studio, for example, 
how many takes would you do? What, how did that process work yeah. of actually recording them? Well, you know, we never did more than three takes. Usually, the first take was it because there was a rehearsal. They didn't just come in cold turkey and say, now we're going to play and blah, blah, blah. Well, they got together. They had to know what tunes they were going to play. They had to like each other. They had to be a cohesive bunch of guys. who know. And if we did three takes, that was a lot. It was usually your first take. James P. Johnson was one of the early artists that you recorded at Blue Note, and he's also somebody you said was a true genius. Oh, I think he was. He was the forefather of, of so many things. Uh, he was a beautiful man on top of it. I mean, to meet him, whoa, you know, you know you're in the presence of someone very special. He's beautiful, not beautiful, beautiful, but a monumental man. And he's very kind and sweet. And he just wanted to get down there and play piano. And he was the king of that, uh, that beat. That's dried piano. We loved that. You know, that was our thing. Tad Dameron was part of the Blue Note family. What was he like? Well, he was a terrific composer, a very serious man, and another person who became a friend. All these artists became your friend because you spent a lot of time with them. And we gave him carte blanche. He was the leader. He's writing the music. He's got the groups that he put together. Well, he was wonderful. He was a, really avant-garde at the time. He wrote a song, If You Could See Me Now. If you could see me now, you'd know the same. That's so beautiful. I love it to this day. When the guys in the band or whoever's playing there, I nag them, play me something I like. They said, what do you like? I said, if you could see me now, <laughs> see how many play it. Somebody else who you said a true genius, Sidney Bechet. Oh, well, Sidney didn't need us. He was a genius no matter what. Wherever Sidney went, he left a, a huge aura of his personality. He was a fabulous guy and the greatest. Who was playing a soprano sax in those days? Only Sidney. He played clarinet as well, but the soprano was where he shone. The big hit was Summertime. very friendly with him. He was great and he was a great cook and he used to come to our apartment uh, down here in the village and make real southern New Orleans food for us because I, I was not into cooking at the time and he was great at that. He had like a family thing with him. You had a deep friendship with Ike Quebec. Oh yeah, Ike was a wonderful guy. I thought he was one of the great saxophonists. He never quite made it but he knew everybody, and he was a real terrific musician. And he was instrumental in introducing us to Thelonious Monk, 
who we didn't know at the time. You know, we were now, Alfred and I, venturing into new forms of jazz or new people. The company was zooming along. It got bigger and bigger and better and better, and we worked at it very hard. And uh, well, he brought us to Monk, who we didn't know at all, didn't even know about him. So that was a great experience to this day. I will never forget it as a cornerstone in my life, meeting Monk and going to his house and watching him play and sitting there for the first time, hearing the first time I ever heard such music. It was so different than anything I had been listening to or knew about. I just went 100% for Thelonious and his music. And I spent time there at his apartment. His mother and sisters lived there. And we were in and out all the time. We were buddies. And you recorded him at Blue Note. Well, yeah, those recordings were fabulous. I still love, I still think they're the best, naturally, but I know they are. You know, in a lot of ways, you were sort of a one-person Thelonious Monk parade. You were just his champion. That's true. I remember I sat down in our little office on my typewriter and I wrote a letter to Ralph Ingersoll at the time, and there was a new newspaper. And I wrote him this letter. I said, there's a genius living in this town and you have to come and hear him or do something about it. He should not remain unknown forever and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote, and Ralph Ingersoll called me up and said, yes, we're going to send a reporter to do this man that you're talking, this genius you're talking about. And he did. He sent me uh, Seymour Peck. And I had a car, and I drove Seymour to Hell's Kitchen, is where Thelonious lived. And he got out of the car, and I got out. He said, where are you going? To me. I said, I'm going with you. No, you're not, he said. I don't have anybody sitting in. I said, he's not going to talk to you. I'm sorry. You'll see. No. I said, okay, goodbye. I said, I went and sat back in the car. And sure enough, he came out a little later. He said, there is no story there. I said, not without me. There is no story. I told you. I went back to Ralph Ingersoll and told him what had happened. He said, I'll send another reporter, and you will go in with him. And I did. And that huge story came out, a double-page spread in the middle of the paper. And they wrote all about Monk. Thelonious Monk was notoriously a quiet man. Why do you think he would open up with you? Well, I don't know how far he opened up, frankly. He accepted me. If he didn't want to talk, he didn't. Or he talking riddles. You know, riddle me this, riddle me that. Look, he had a style like his music. To me, his personality was as quirky as his music, and it just fit together. That, that's the way he was. That's the way the music was. It was all of a, of a piece. 
the very secret of man. You, you knew his family, immediate family, but beyond that, there wasn't anything to know. He sat at the piano from morning till night in his one little room. His little bedroom was the size of a long closet with a bed here and the piano there, an upright piano. And we would sit on the bed with our feet out, a cot kind of thing, and look at his back and his hands as he played the upright piano. to promote him because we thought he was so great. At the time, the records did not sell that well, but it took time. Now, it was through Monk that you encountered Max Gordon again. Oh, well, yes. I always call Monk uh, Cupid. He didn't know he was Cupid <laughs> on the side. Yes, I, 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 I inadvertently, I booked Monk into the Vanguard because I met Max the Fire Island summer place. I happened to be there. He was there. I knew who Max was, although I didn't know him. And he was sitting in a little uh, coffee house there, and I was in there. And I said, you know, there's a great artist. You ought to hear him. I just went up to him cold. Well, that was easy to do in the summer because I had a cute little yellow bathing suit on, and I'm <laughs> 28. <laughs> And he's nice, and I'm nice. <laughs> he says, sit down, tell me all about it. He said, I just happened to have some room in September. Great. I booked him. I didn't know I was a booking agent now. And he did come with a great band, Art Blakey on drums, Sahib Shahab was there. And nobody came because nobody knew him. And we never had time to promote him or whatever. Max didn't even know who he was, frankly. Max just did it for me. He'd never heard of Thelonious in his life and knew nothing about him. How did Max respond to Thelonious's game? Well, gig? not well, not well, well, not well. <laughs> Thelonious plays and then he gets up from the piano and dances his little dance, a little jig around the piano, then sits down right on the beat. And then that song is over, and then he gets up and says, and now human beings, I'm going to play, blah, blah, blah. <gasps> Max called me over. He says, listen, what kind of an announcement is that? I said, Mr. Gordon, you don't understand. The man is a genius. Why don't you listen? <laughs> He's Mr. Gordon to me then. Well, Lorraine, you went from calling him Mr. Gordon to becoming Mrs. Gordon. Yeah, How right. How did that happen? They used to call me Lorraine after a while. <laughs> How did it happen? Well, I don't know. Max was a bachelor supreme. And he had no problem in enjoying his private life as a bachelor. Somehow, we connected. And I got tired of living in this little one room down in the village. And Max offered me a bigger room a little further on the other side of the village. I decided to take it. <laughs> At the time, Max owned 
not just the Village Vanguard, but the Uptown Club, oh, the Blue Angel. Yeah, that enticed me as well. <laughs> that was the Blue Angel. Oh, my dear. That, those were the beautiful days, you know, where you saw the best acts ever in the most gorgeous atmosphere and great food, great wine, <laughs> great everything. That's where I spend a lot of time. I didn't spend much time at the Vanguard. Because at, at the time, the Village Vanguard wasn't exclusively a jazz club. It wasn't a jazz place at all. It never started out as a jazz place. And Max was not a jazz nut like me. He, he wanted to be a writer, and he loved poetry, and he loved writing, and he loved artists. He was an intellectual. He came to live in the village. So he decided to open a club where he could invite poets just to read their poetry. And he did, and people used to throw money on the floor. That's how they got paid. And Max kept that going because he enjoyed it. And then the break came when these four kids came down the stairs and asked if Max if they could show him their act, if they could get up on the stage and do their thing. He said, yeah, go ahead. And he loved them, and he hired them. And that act called The Reviewers was Judy Holliday, Betty Comden, and Adolph Green. And sometimes uh, Leonard Bernstein came and played piano for them. These were the kids from New York who were the up-and-coming brains of that musical season. Well, they got so famous that they left and went to the Rainbow Room uptown. But it opened Max's eyes to alternatives. So that's what happened. And then Max got involved more with jazz musicians. He didn't know them all, but people would come to him. And he listened. And it became a jazz club, total jazz club. Meanwhile, the Blue Angel went bankrupt uptown. Why? Because all the acts that Max and his partner hired up there were now on television came in and changed the whole face of everything. And that's how it started in the 50s. And that's how it's remained in the 12s. You know, there's a band that plays there. It's now called the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. It was originally uh, Mel Lewis, Thad Jones band. 47 years it's been there. Both leaders died, but we kept the band. And when I had to come down there, I said, let's keep the band every Monday night. And today, you can't even get in on a Monday night. They built themselves up. Every club in New York that's a jazz club has a band on a Monday night. That is protocol. <laughs> and it all came from that band at the Vanguard. And they're wonderful still today. How many people does the Vanguard seat? Oh, 123. So it's small. It's an oh, it's very small. Space. It's the littlest club ever, and it's, it's incredible. You can't get in half the time. You have to have a reservation, or you can't get in. It's, I mean, there are two shows a night. That's it. How did re the recordings live from the Village Vanguard begin? Well, I'll tell you how it starts. The sound at the Vanguard is so incredible. There is no recording studio that can equal it, and that's why the musicians like to play there.
books. They like to hear themselves and they can hear, relate to the audience and it is a perfect music venue for jazz artists and the sound because of the shape of the room, the pie shape, I don't know. It's just beautiful sound. And so they say, let's do a record down here. And so they did come, companies would come, or the artists themselves would get some engineers and do it, but mostly it was a record company. And then Coltrane recorded his masterworks there, and that became very famous. like being in the audience and seeing John Coltrane play in that famous, famous set? Well, nobody thought of it that way then. Nobody knew Coltrane was that great. Hey, Miles Davis was there. Bill Evans played for weeks on end. Well, he was beautiful. They're all wonderful today, and they all have records to prove it. But Coltrane was a turning point because he changed the music a lot. They all had different ideas about what it should sound like, and he was very original in that way. You know, for as much as you knew about jazz, Max wasn't really consulting you a lot about who to bring into the Vanguard. No, it was Max's club. I never interfered. I went there to hear the music. He seemed to know what he was doing. People liked him very much. He was a nice guy. And I, I, I had a job at the Brooklyn Museum, by the way. I've been working all my life. Before yeah. the Brooklyn Museum, I worked at the Poster Originals for 15 years. I was in the art world. I did that every day of my life. I raised two children. I mean, what's it like not to work? I have no idea. <laughs> I can't remember. In your book, you write that even though you taking over the club, it was nothing Max ever really talked to you about. You said, and I think this is true, everything in your life prepared you for taking over the club. Well, when Max died, I didn't have to take the Vanguard over. He never asked me, never thought about it, frankly. But I did, and that's been since 1989. But see, my whole life was motivated. At the end of the road was the club. All those things along the way were just along the way because the goal was there and you, re you finally reached it without trying to, but was preordained, I think. And I think he had confidence it might happen that way. I don't know. I'm guessing. Lorraine, I want you to describe a typical day. Don't cross your eyes. What time do you get up? What do you do? Well, I mean, I generally get up by 10, 11 o'clock, and I read my New York Times religiously every morning. That's my Bible. Then I have errands to do. I have to go to the bank. I make the deposits. I do things like that. 
And I go to the club by 2.30, 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock is when the club opens for the day for us. So there I am, and the phones ring, the phones, the phones. No wonder I'm deaf, because all I do is answer telephones. I don't have to do that. I could hire someone to answer the phones. But it's not the same, because I like to hear what people have to say on the other end. <laughs> I encourage them, or I discourage them. <laughs> So we do that, and then there's a lot of paperwork, and musicians come down to rehearse. If it's a Tuesday night, they want to come down, and they rehearse. And then, anyway, I, I leave the club, I would generally say, around 6 o'clock. I come home, unless I'm eating out with someone, which isn't too... I don't encourage that anymore, because I come home and I have to take a little nap, because i get because I got to go back at night. And I cook my own dinner, and I love to cook, so that's a good thing because it's, it's very creative. Since I don't play an instrument, I like to cook. And, uh, and then I go back to the club. Nine o'clock is the first show. I go for my reward to hear the music. If I like what I'm hearing, I'm happy. I don't stay till closing, you know, I stay for probably one show, and then friends come and you sit and you talk, you know, a little socializing. I get home by 12 or so, and you have to unwind because you've been wound up tight all day with a million chores or errands or things happen, there's a leak in the ceiling, then you got a carpenter to fix that, you need the electrician, you know, you're... You're constantly babying this room, fixing it up before it falls apart. Who decides who plays at the Village Vanguard? Moi. <laughs> and how do you choose? I do it because I know the music and I know what I like, and I'm very selfish. I, look, a lot of acts are coming up that people, their managers or agents tell me, you got to have this, and I know they're playing all over I don't like them. I listen. I take all. I listen to records here all the time, but they're not artists that make me happy or make the Vanguard's aura better. To put in someone you just don't like because they happen to be getting popular. I'm a jazz person. I don't like all those extra added-on frills. <laughs> have nothing to do with what I consider jazz. That's the way it works for me. It's very simple. In your book, you write, jazz is more alive today than ever. Yes, well, a couple of years ago, all you would hear from people is, jazz is dead, jazz is dead. I said, really? I said, when's the funeral? I said, because there's so many people coming here to hear jazz. It's not dead. It can't be, because you can't even get into the club half the time. Oh, it's hardly dead. Hardly. That was 2013 NEA jazz master and owner of the Village Vanguard, Lorraine Gordon. Lorraine and the other 2013 Jazz Masters will receive their awards at the Jazz Masters Ceremony and Concert on January 14th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The NEA is webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov and click on Jazz Masters for more information. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. 
excerpt from Summertime, composed by George Gershwin, performed by Sidney Bechet, from the album The Best of Sidney Bechet, used courtesy of EMI Capital. Excerpt from Let's Cool One, from the album Mysterioso, composed by Thelonious Monk and performed by the Thelonious Monk Quartet, used courtesy of Concord Music Group. Excerpt from Ruby My Dear, composed by Thelonious Monk, performed by Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane. From the album Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane, used courtesy of Concord Music Group. Excerpt from Straight No Chaser, from the album Straight No Chaser, composed and performed by Thelonious Monk, used courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpts from Spiritual and Chasing the Train, from the album Live at the Village Vanguard, Written and performed by John Coltrane, used courtesy of Universal Music Group. Excerpt from Sunny Moon for Two, composed and performed by Sonny Rollins. From the album A Night at the Village Vanguard, used courtesy of EMI Capital. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, 2013 NEA Jazzmaster... Eddie Palmieri. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.